Well then, with a view to God's help, let's um, turn again to Mark chapter 6. he was um, himself deeply troubled because he was responsible for putting John to death in the first place. And although he was a sinner and an exceedingly grave sinner, yet in spite of his sins, his conscience was not yet seared. It wasn't yet dead. And in fact, it was troubling him. Now, John the Baptist had originally, sorry, Herod had originally wanted uh, John the Baptist dead, as did his wife Herodias. And you'll remember from last week the reason that they both wanted him dead was because he had rebuked him for taking his brother's wife. He did that on a state visit to Rome. Uh, he took his brother Philip's wife back with him. So he wanted him dead too, and when he originally imprisoned him, it was with a view to put him to death. But we saw last week, as the scripture tells us, that his attitude to John changed. Uh, because he noted, as the Bible tells us, that John was a just and a holy man. He was just in his dealings with men, and he was holy in the presence of God. And therefore, as the scripture tells us, he began to fear John. You would expect in this situation that John would fear Herod, having the power. But no, Herod feared John. He recognised that there was a presence and a power with John the Baptist. And then, amazingly, he began to bring him out of the prison from time to time, and he began to hear him. In fact, Mark tells us that he heard him often, and even more remarkably, he tells us that he heard him gladly. And what's more, he actually acted on what he heard. We're told that when he heard him often and gladly, he responded by doing many things. So the preaching didn't simply move his heart, but it stirred him to action, which is more than can be said for a lot of people, maybe perhaps for yourself. But he responded by doing many things. Of course, sadly, he stopped short of doing the one thing that was needful. He didn't meaningfully repent and turn to embrace the Lord Jesus Christ. And as I closed by saying last Lord's Day, perhaps like Felix, who trembled when Paul preached the gospel, but yet waited for a convenient season it's possible that Herod himself was hoping that perhaps through time he might be able to change his own circumstances. Certainly the gospel can work like that. It can work like that in the consciences sometimes of people who are pretty far gone in sin. 
But as I did mention right at the close last Sabbath evening, an opportune time came. But sad to say, it wasn't an opportune time for Herod, but an opportune time for Herodias, his wife, and an opportune time for Satan himself. That's the problem with convenient seasons and opportune times. Opportune for whom? Convenient for whom? And we read in verse 21 that an opportune day came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a feast for his nobles, the high officers, and the chief men of Galilee. So the opportunity comes on the day of Herod's birthday. Now for Herod, like all the Herods, you'll remember there are six of them in the New Testament, but for all of them, um, it's a case of any excuse for a party, particularly when the focus on the party is on themselves. And there's um, many a large ego that thinks that a spotlight is wasted unless it shines on themselves, and the Herods, of course, were very much like that. When you think of it, really, it's quite a strange thing for a sinner who has no knowledge of God to be celebrating their birthday. Um, what exactly is there to celebrate? I was thinking of this in connection with Psalm 137, where the Levite there wasn't able to play his instrument in praise of God. And what he said was, if I do not remember you, or if I forget you, he says to the Lord, then let my tongue cleave to the roof of my mouth. And he says, let my right hand lose its skill. If I do not remember Jerusalem above my chief joy. In other words, the Lord and the things of the Lord were to be uppermost in his heart. And he says, if I cannot praise God, I will praise nothing else. If I cannot rejoice in the Lord, then why or how can I rejoice in anything else? Now, does something like that not come to us when we think of a man like Herod celebrating his birthday? There is a holy man of God under his own lock and key, and his soul is not right with God. And for what reason does he celebrate his own birthday? Let me put it this way to you. It, it brings out the foolishness of it, the vanity of it, and the sin of it. If Herod is in hell tonight, as I think we have every reason to believe that he is, no reason really to believe that he isn't, if Herod is in hell tonight, do you think he has a reason to celebrate his birthday? Did the Lord not say concerning someone else that it would have been better for such a man had he not been born at all. Did he not say that of Judas Iscariot? Woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It were better for that man if he had never been born at all. Indeed, if Herod is in hell tonight, we can safely say that for the last 2,000 years he has not celebrated his birthday. If Job, in a time of great darkness, that righteous and godly man, came to a time when he said that he, he wished he hadn't been born, which he did say, how much more can a lost soul say that? And how foolish to celebrate your own birthday when you are ignorant of God, without hope and without God in the world. One day you'll see that the day of your birth was not to be celebrated unless you came to know the Saviour. Now, it's no surprise that he throws a lavish party. And all the government officials are there, all the nobles of Galilee, most of them located in Capernaum, but some elsewhere too. It's quite possible that we would number the guests in the hundreds. And these feasts held by the Herods modelled the feasts held by the Romans, the Herodians like to think of themselves as, as Romans, uh, rulers of the same stature, the same dignity, and the same importance. And these feasts, like the Roman feasts, very quickly degenerated, as 
most parties do. They degenerated into gluttony and degenerated into drunkenness. And very often when they had reached a certain point, they would bring on the dancers. And that, of course, is what happened here too. Now, our catechism, particularly the larger catechism, when it asks what (laughs) sins are forbidden by the seventh commandment, it reminds us that lascivious dancing is forbidden by the seventh commandment. Lascivious dancing is a dancing that contains flirtatious or sexual connotations. And the fact of the matter is that right throughout history, until relatively relatively recently, when of course everyone has become so wise, right throughout history, all mixed sex dancing was considered to be lascivious dancing because it was deemed to be, in its very essence, flirtatious, having sexual connotations, because of the kind of contact made between a man and a woman and uh, the kind of movements made at the same time too. I've heard people say to me, you know, a few times, people will say, well, what can be wrong with a man dancing with his wife? And my response to that is, why do you ask that question? By asking that question, you are actually saying that there seems to be a problem with dancing with someone who is not actually your wife. Asking the question tells you what the problem is. And of course it does. If I were to see you or you were to see me dancing with somebody else who is not wife or husband, you wouldn't feel altogether comfortable. Why? Because there is something flirtatious and sexual in a mixed sex dance. To be honest, if someone doesn't see it, I don't know. I don't know how to tell a, a colourblind person what the distinction between colours is. I don't know how to explain yellow to a person who's blind. And if there's no flirtatious element in mixed sex dancing, well, I don't know. But one thing sure, it has been prohibited down through the years by churches of all kinds of stripes and hues, from the Roman Catholic Church at the one end, right through all the Orthodox churches, whether Russian or Eastern or Greek, or right through to the Reformed churches, you will find through a period of hundreds of years that they all pass either acts or directives or something against mixed sex dancing on the basis that it is flirtatious, that it contains forms of movement and contact between the sexes that is inappropriate for the Lord's people. And of course you will notice that the only examples that you find of dancing in the Bible are solo sex. Either women at a time of national celebration, sometimes men in a time of religious rejoicing, but never mixed sex, always solo sex. Now it's worth saying too that it's not just the contact element that can be sensual or indeed sexual, not just the contact element. For example, there are many forms of dances, uh, when people go clubbing, for example, where there can be little contact, but the whole movement, the whole performance is designed to be arousing. And again, a Christian will immediately recognise that as lascivious dancing and will refrain from it. Now, of course, the reason that lascivious dancing is highlighted is because it does recognise that there may be forms of dance performed by a person which is not lascivious in intention. That will be non-mixed sex dancing. It is a simple art form that is conveying a certain thing. Now that is one thing and completely different from what is meant by lascivious dancing. But it's very obvious too that this beautiful girl is not doing anything like that at all. This is not an art form. It's nothing approximating a highland fling or anything like that. It is quite different. She's performing it on her own and she knows what she's doing with her movements and her intentions and certainly so does her mother. Her whole objective is to enchant and entrance and awaken a sensual king. Now none of these events happening here are left to chance. Neither do they just develop 
because they just happen to develop. There's a brain behind the whole thing. And she's organised it extremely well. Insofar as we can speak of the devil being clever, well, so is his disciple here, Herodias, this girl's mother, and of course Herod's wife. She's prepared the party, and she certainly has prepared the dance. And if the dance is her strange gift to her own husband, she's far more interested in the gift that he's going to bring her. Because her whole intention is to box her husband into a situation where she gets her desire. It's her gift that matters on this birthday, not Herod's. She wants her own gift on a plate. And that, of course, is the head of John the Baptist. The poet said that hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. Uh, well, of course it does, but we understand what he means. Uh, he could also have said that hell hath no fury like a woman rebuked or exposed. She didn't like it when John the Baptist said what he had to say. The, the man or the woman of God responds differently. You know, if, if someone tells you from the Lord that there's something wrong in your life, if, if you've got grace in your heart, you'll take it and you'll listen. Uh, sometimes, as someone once said, even when you think it's mainly wrong, you'll be glad to hear the 5% of truth that's in it, simply because humility just trains and teaches you that way. Let the righteous smack me. It shall a kindness be. It shall a kindness be. But if the Lord's not reigning in your heart, and if pride has a real hold upon your heart, well, that's not the way you're going to respond. And there are some people who just cannot take any kind of rebuke at all, any kind of exposure, nothing like that, because they are so full of self-righteousness. And sometimes the most wicked people on earth are absolutely full of self-righteousness in a very surprising kind of way. And the fact is that this woman feels humiliated and so she wants to get back. You all know people like that. They want to get back. Revenge. Vengeance. A dish best served cold, some people say. Well, she bought her time. She bought her time and she created the situation. And there's nothing she won't stoop to to get her own back on the prophet. Nothing. Will she prostitute her daughter effectively to the eyes of men who are ogling at her? Yes, she's prepared to do that. Is she actually prepared to prostitute her daughter to the ogling of her own husband? Yes. She's prepared to do that, which, by the way, tells you how little she loved him or cared about him. Whatever her precise motive for leaving his brother Philip and going with him to Galilee had nothing to do with love. I suspect it had a lot to do with power. I'll come back to that a little later on. Is she prepared to take advantage of the weakness and sensuality and drunkenness of her own husband to get her own objective? Yes, she's prepared to do that. Is she prepared to kill a prophet, a holy and a just man, a man of God? According to the Lord, the greatest man who had walked the face of the earth? Yes, she's prepared to do that. Friends, how evil a thing sin is. We seldom see it in all its ugliness. We have way, various ways of hiding it in ourselves, masking it, even hiding it in others. But when it's let loose, when the devil is let loose in a human heart, how ugly it lo looks, how low it's prepared to stoop. The devil is in this place, the devil is in this hall, along with the drink and the, the talk and the dancing and the performance. The devil is there. Of course he's there. Now, of course, nothing is left to chance. The mother effectively goes to the daughter. She arranges the performance. She essentially says to him that at a certain point my husband will speak to you and he'll offer you a gift. I know her he is, you know. When, when drink gets into him, he, 
he's full of bravado and he likes to think of himself as a great benefactor and so on. He, he'll make you an offer of some kind. And when he makes you that offer, he says, you just come straight back to me. Don't, don't tell him what you want, just come straight back to me. Sure enough, of course, when she dances, she moves in a certain way and Herod is entranced. He's absolutely enchanted. And of course, in a situation like this, what happens? Well, one thing, sure, the prisoner is long forgotten. And the servants he had heard, forgotten. How often had he called out John? I don't know. Often, the Bible says. How often had he been glad to have John speak to him? To tell John to tell him about heaven and hell. John telling him about the Messiah, that he had already been born. John telling him about holiness, righteousness. How to be right with God. How to inherit eternal life. How to know God. How to be a believer. Hearing him gladly. But you know yourself in a drunken party, all that's gone. There's no place as good for getting rid of convictions as a drunken party. And he forgets all that. Forgets all he had heard. That's the way it goes, is it not? And full of drink, full of his own sense of self-importance, full of all his male bravado talks, he offers her anything that she wants. Anything, she says. Anything at all. Yes, he says. In fact, I'll swear to you, he says right now, that I'll give you anything you ask for, even up to half my kingdom. Oh, Herod, what a big man you are. What a great man. Psalm 50 comes to my mind. <clears throat> How dare you take my laws upon your lips? How dare he take the name of God on his lips? How dare he implicate the Almighty with an oath in a debauched setting like this? But that's exactly what he does. The fact that he's drunk doesn't excuse him. It doesn't even mitigate the situation in the slightest. You know, drunkenness only aggravates any kind to which it's attached. Um, sometimes people take a, a light view of drink or drunkenness and they say, oh, well, you know, I was drunk when I did that. I was drunk when I said it. Really? Does that mitigate the thing? When we become drunk, what we effectively do is we leave ourselves open to pretty much any kind of sin. And we know that when we do it. We know that we are releasing ourselves to all kinds of possibilities that just aggravates the thing that is done and we all need to remember that being drunk just makes every sin worse than it really is but he makes the offer and the girl goes straight to her mother and of course it's like all her birthdays have arrived at once she knows exactly what she wants. No hesitation. She says, you go back to Herod, you go back to my husband, and tell him that I want John's head. Tell him that I want it on a plate. Isn't that interesting? It's like a meal to her. Tell him that I want it on a plate, and tell him that I want it immediately. And the girl goes up to Herod with a ghastly request. Now, I have no doubt in my own mind anyway that the party stops. No doubt at all about that. I've no doubt that there's a sense of shock in the hall as it, as it ripples round what the girl has asked for. I mean, nobody else is focused on anything. Everybody was focused on the dance. Everybody is then focused on the offer. And everybody is then focused on the request. And you can hear the gasp of shock as this young girl who's been entertaining Herod and others suddenly asks for the head of a prophet. And everybody in that room knows how respected that prophet is. There are people in that room 
although they were what they were, they knew he was a man of God. Knew that. And suddenly, there's a request for his head on a platter. You know, sometimes people are astonishingly drunk, and when some shocking event happens, they're astonishingly sober. In the twinkling of an eye, there are some things so sudden and so awful that a person can be stunned into sobriety. I believe Herod was like that, and I believe the rest of them too. A sense of disgust. Herod himself, we're told, was exceedingly sorry. Verse 26. He was exceedingly sorry. But again, wasn't sorry enough. Just as he had heard John before gladly, and he did many things, he didn't do enough. He didn't do the one thing needful. Well, we can say the same here now on the evening of his birthday. He's exceedingly sorry, but he's not sorry enough. And all of us can be sorry for our sins from time to time. We can sorry for, be sorry for things we said and things we've done. We can be exceedingly sorry. Sometimes even as you go on in life, you can look back over certain things perhaps you did in your youth and feel exceedingly sorry that you did these things and that you said these things. I was talking once to somebody who had been a means of bullying somebody else in his youth and he felt really, really dreadful about it. He was exceedingly sorry for the way that he had dealt with, a, with another child in his school. These things can really hurt you. They can really, really convict you. But exceedingly sorry is no use unless it's sorry enough. Enough to change. And even here on this awful, awful night, there's an opportunity for Herod to change. To say what Saul said the king long ago when he had been hunting David, here, there and everywhere. And David instead had showed him a great kindness. And Saul just for a moment seemed to see a chink of light and he said, I have played the fool and I have erred exceedingly. Well, could Herod not say that? fool I've been. No, he doesn't say that. He says something different. Why? Well, in verse 26, we're told that because of the oaths and because of those who sat with him, he did not want to refuse her. Because of the oaths. Well, He's using religion to cover his irreligion. He's using religion as a cloak for doing something. Do you really think that taking an oath to do evil binds you to doing that evil? I mean, how absurd would that be? An oath must always be for a right and lawful thing. Only then is it to be kept. For example, I mean, let me take an obvious example. Um, a stark one. If, if I was to be foolish enough to make an oath tonight that I was going to break into your house and to rob it tomorrow, I suppose I was then convinced from the Bible that I ought not to do that. What a fool I would be to undo it. I mean, to keep such an oath is to add sin to sin. It was a sin to make that oath it would certainly be adding another scene to keep it. Keep it. I have no right to promise to God that I will take someone else's life. What right have I got to make such a promise? My duty is to repent of it, to repent of the foolishness, and to ask God forgiveness for making such a foolish oath in the first place. So beware of using religion to cover irreligion. Someone can say to you, oh yes, I did wrong. I've heard that said in church before. I've heard it said by people who have done wrong in a church. And, oh, we, we don't want to put it right because I think it's more important to keep the peace. No, it's more important to put it right. Don't use one religious precept as an excuse to break another one. People can be very clever in doing things like that. But God sees... God knows. Don't use an oath, Herod. 
as an excuse for committing a terrible, terrible crime. God's not interested in you performing an oath that was evil to make in the first place. But the second reason for not backing out of the corner was because of those who sat with him. Look at that in verse 26. He was exceedingly sorry, yet because of the oaths and because of those who sat with him, he didn't want to refuse her. Because of those who sat with him. Well, their opinion of him. He wanted to be seen as Mr. Consistent. He wanted to be seen as a man of his word. He didn't want to be seen as someone who just made a promise like that, that he would generously give anything up to have his kingdom and then backed out when it was a little bit awkward. Oh, no, no. He wanted to retain his reputation in the sight of the people. Again, it reminds me of King Saul, uh, who had a practice of habitually sinning before God. Uh, he just couldn't stop. And uh, one day Samuel, of course, told him that God was going to take away the kingdom from him and give it to someone else. And um, Saul, Saul said to Samuel, he said, Honour me in front of this people. Honour me in front of this people. What mattered most to Saul there was, was not the staggering fact that God was going to take the kingdom away from him and give it to somebody else, but that there was some kind of loss of face and loss of reputation in front of the people. Isn't that terrible? How people orientated we are. How orientated we are around what people think and how they will respond rather than how God responds and how God wants us to behave. Honour me in front of the people, Samuel. Don't disgrace me in front of the people. Ah, well, don't you disgrace God then, Samuel. Saul. And so Herod feels himself boxed in. Well, it's the devil who's boxed you in. It's not God. And in, in mortified silence, he dispatches the executioner to the dungeon. And I suppose with that we can gladly bring the curtain down on that hall of debauchery and drunkenness and dancing and open the curtain down below in the dungeon where there's one man and a man on his own. And that, of course, is John the Baptist. Now, it's not long since we considered John in the dungeon. Not long at all. You'll remember how he was impatiently waiting. Sad to say he was impatiently waiting, but which of us can throw a stone there? He was impatiently waiting for his deliverance. He knew that Christ was performing miracles, but the one miracle he expected was his own deliverance from prison. Whether by miracle or not, he thought, well, surely the Lord who can heal the sick, open the eyes of the blind, and unstop the ears of the deaf, surely he can remember me. Surely he can remember me. Surely he does remember me. Surely he knows me. Surely he loves me and cares for me and will open these prison doors. After all, the Lord was well able to open the prison doors for Peter. Sometime after this, the angels led him out, led him through the streets. And you'll remember when he knocked at the door of the house, a, a girl called Voda thought it was a ghost. Surely the Lord can do that for me. Of course, it doesn't happen. He sends messengers saying, are you the one that was to come or should we, should we look for somebody else? The Lord sent back gentle words of comfort and rebuke. But I wonder if John thought that the deliverance would still come. I wonder if John thought that Christ's message was effectively just hold on a little longer, be patient, I'm in charge of the timetable. When the time comes, there will be a release. Well, if he thought that, he was wrong. A release certainly came, but it was a release of a very different kind. And sometimes it can be like that. I've known more than one Christian person uh, on their deathbed persuaded of a recovery 
and then brought to realize that the, the brightness that they were anticipating was heaven itself, not, not a recovery to health in this life. The fact of the matter is that it wasn't Christ's plan to release John the Baptist. And you know the Saviour knew that. Of course he did. He knew it. And he knew when he sent the message back to John that he wasn't going to open these prison doors for him. And that was a commandment that Christ himself had to keep. That was part of what the Father gave him. And I'm sure the Lord's heart was heavy. But nonetheless, it was lightened by the fact that he knew that John was still going to be released. A better release. A far better release than getting out of the dungeon to be released into the glory that was to come. And perhaps then, it's possible that maybe he wasn't surprised when these men came in the door into his dark dungeon and one of them is wielding a large and a sharp axe. And I'm sure that like the martyrs that were before him and the martyrs were since, I'm sure he didn't make any attempt protect himself. It is the Lord. Let him do what seemeth right unto him. I'm sure he put his own neck on the block. Uh, just as the Saviour himself gave his back to those who smote it, and he gave his cheeks to those who plucked the beard, I'm quite sure John put his own head on the executioner's block. And when that axe fell that night. What a, what a horrifying night it actually all was, was it not? What a horrifying night in that place, in that castle, in that palace. That axe severed the head from the body of the greatest man who had ever lived. The greatest prophet, the greatest born among women. It was no wonder when Christ heard the news. Matthew tells us, Mark puts it slightly differently, but Matthew adds another detail. Matthew tells us that when Christ heard the news, he went away into a deserted place all by himself. Isn't that an interesting thing to read? How full of compassion is the Saviour shot, knowing that it wasn't his portion to release him from the prison himself. But he went to a deserted place with his own thoughts and with his own prayers. He loved John the Baptist, just as John the Baptist loved him. I'm quite sure the executioner himself probably took no pleasure in what he did. But he lifted the head and he put it on the plate. One of the plates used in the party to serve the dishes and he puts the head on the dish and you close the curtain in the dungeon and sad to say you have to raise it again in the upper room, the place of uh, drunkenness and dancing. But there's nothing happening there. I can be quite sure there's no one drinking at this point and there's no one dancing. John heard all that noise, you know, when he was down in the dungeon. Um, <clears throat> To him it was, it was the music of hell really, uh, but it was instantly replaced by the music of heaven. But there was no music upstairs when the executioner comes back. If, if there was gasps of silence when they heard what the young girl asked for, you can imagine the gasps as the executioner comes in with a, with a head. A head just recently severed from its body, a bloody head on a bloody platter and brings it over to Herodias. And of course to Herod too. What a sight. No one there could ever forget it. I'll tell you something. Herod could never forget it. I'll tell you too that Herod still hasn't forgotten it. There are some sights you see in life and they're just burned into your consciousness. You can never forget them. Never forget them. You think of these eyes staring at him from the plate. Eyes that he knew could see right through him as he preached to him. Think of the mouth. The mouth that had warned him time and time again. The mouth that had promised him that God would come and receive him if he turned to him. 
Think of the hair. Seven locks of hair on John the Baptist's head that had never been cut since he was a wee boy. Never cut because of his consecration to God. There it is on the plate. Everything about that man's head telling Herod what he ought to be himself and what he isn't. The contrast between that man and himself. And I'm sure Herod knows deep down in his own soul that that man is better off than he is himself. But he's cut off his head. And he's cut him off from the earth. He's responsible. There are many things which other people do for which we're responsible. You've got to work that out for yourself. Think of the responsibility that you have for many sins, perhaps, that others have committed even in your own house. I thought a while back of the fact that if Herod is in hell, then he wouldn't be keeping his birthday. But I'll tell you this too, that he hasn't forgotten that sight he saw that night, I'll tell you that. He sees it every waking hour, and the sad fact is that there is only waking hours in hell. There are no sleeping hours. If there were, it would be some relief. But we read of the wicked in Revelation, I think it's Revelation 14, that they have no rest day nor night. No rest day nor night. So is it any wonder here that his conscience is troubling when he hears about Jesus? This is John back from the dead. But again, his conscience doesn't trouble him enough. See, this is the problem with Herod all the time. He did many things, but not the one thing needful. He was exceedingly sorry. He wasn't sorry enough. His conscience troubles him, but it doesn't trouble him enough. There are two postscripts in connection with Herod that I want to bring before you. Before we finish, one comes from the Bible, the other comes from secular history. The one that comes from the Bible has to do with Herod at last getting his wish and meeting the Lord Jesus Christ. After he had heard about him for a while, he really desired to meet with him. That's an interesting thing. It's a good thing, really. It's a good thing that he desires to meet with the Lord Jesus Christ. But it didn't turn out quite as he expected. Seldom does. It seldom does. We're told that Pilate, of course, was frustrated by the fact that he, he couldn't, for whatever reason, uh, let Christ off, send him away as the innocent man that he was. He felt himself boxed in too, because the devil boxed him in. And of course, when he heard that he was from Galilee, he said, right, I'll put this to Herod. That's his jurisdiction, really. There's, there's a case here for Herod taking the case and looking after it. So we're told that Pilate eh, sent him over to Herod. In Luke chapter 23. When Pilate heard of Galilee... He asked if the man were a Galilean, and as soon as he knew that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at that time. Now, Herod happened to be on business in Jerusalem. When Herod saw Jesus, listen to this, he was exceedingly glad, for he had desired for a long time to see him, because he had heard many things about him, and he hoped to see some miracle done by him. Now that's a disappointment. We'd have thought, Herod, you'd be looking for something very different from that. And then we read that he questioned Jesus with many words. But he answered him, nothing. He answered him, nothing. Then Herod, with his men of war, treated him with contempt and mocked him, arrayed him in a gorgeous robe, and sent him back to Pilate. Isn't it a thought to stand before Christ and Christ has nothing to say to you? 
To me it almost conveys disdain. You've had your day. You've had your opportunity. There's the blood of a saint on your hand. But that's not all it is. I know what your heart is really like. I have nothing to say to you at all. Not until I see you at the judgment seat. When our roles will be reversed. And the Lord reads his heart right. Because what does Herod do? Abuse him and treat him with contempt. Don't you reach the day, friend, when Christ has nothing to say to you in the way of grace. Don't reach that day. The last thing is what's told us by secular historians. Um, I'm sure Herod wishes he wasn't quite under Herodias' thumb in the way that he was because she persuaded him to go to Rome and to look for promotion because she was jealous of how another brother seemed to be advancing. Herod didn't actually want to go, but he went. The emperor at the time was Caligula. I'm sure most of you have heard of him as the mad emperor. There were several of them who could qualify for that, but he was extraordinarily mad and unpredictable. And he exercised all his unpredictability in connection with Herod. What did he do? He banished him to a remote part of France. And he was never heard of again. This is the man who was so powerful and so wanted to impress everybody who sat in the hall with him that night. And he ends up in the back of beyond with no one to care less about him. What a sorry, sorry fate awaits those who are not the Lord's. What a destiny we choose for ourselves. Nothing heard of him from that point onwards. A man who had his day and a man who had his opportunities. And we can't but forget that there was a time when he heard the gospel often and he heard it gladly. But in the end, sin conquered him. And if we don't conquer sin through faith in Jesus Christ our Lord, then certainly sin will conquer us. And if we don't take our opportunity, the devil will take his. Let us pray. <clears throat> Eternal God, enable us to recognise that now indeed is the day of salvation and uh, that the door is open and that we must pass through it before it shuts. We remember even those virgins who were awaiting the appearance of the Lord, they were foolish and the door was shut upon them and it was indeed then too late. We pray that the day would not come when you are silent and your voice no longer to be heard until we hear it saying, Depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and for his angels. May we learn from Herod. May we learn from Herodias. But may we also learn from John the Baptist. In the Saviour's name we pray. Amen. <coughs>
Be wise. Be taught, you judges of the earth. Now, who are these kings and judges? If you go back to verse 2, we're told that the kings of the earth do set themselves and princes are combined to plot against the Lord and his Christ. Now, uh, the apostles quoted that verse uh, when they referred to Herod and Pilate colluding together. People who actually didn't like each other, but they colluded together <coughs> in connection with the death of the Saviour. They quoted this very verse, kings of the earth setting themselves, princes combined against the Lord of his anointing. So therefore, in verse 10, these kings are now counseled to be wise and to be taught to serve God in fear and to see that you join trembling with your mirth. Of course, it doesn't just apply to kings and judges. It applies to us all. Let us kiss the Son, recognize his lordship, lest in his ire, his anger, you perish from the way. If once his wrath begin to burn, blessed all that on him stay, flee from the wrath to come. Verses 8 to 12, to God's praise, we stand to see.